Let's roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for ranks, flanks, and kings of war. as they delve into the world of Panathor and bring you worldwide coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Countercharge. I'm Tom Annis. I'm Matt Croger. And I'm Jeremy Duvall. And tonight we are joined in the List Builder studio by the man, the spymaster, Dojo's Everyman, the handsome Tom Annis. How are you doing, Tom? Hey, great, great. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, now, Tom, you've been on Countercharge a couple of times, uh, so we've heard a little bit about you, but let's do it with a bit more structure than we've done previously, and we'll take a deep dive into your evil, evil mind, Mr. Tom Annis. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about where you're from and, and how you got into tabletop gaming. Sure. I live in... Uh right outside of, right in between Dallas and Fort Worth and uh, Texas. I grew up in Chicago, so I'm not a, a native Texan. I just like to pull the Texan card when I know, you know, it's going to annoy somebody. Um, <laughs> so I I was never a tabletop gamer growing up. I honestly didn't even know the hobby existed until a, a couple of years ago. Um, but I've always been into fantasy gaming, uh, into turn-based computer games. And so it's a, it's kind of a natural progression of those interests. Uh, you know, I like to play games like Civilization and MMOs like, you know, EverQuest and, and World of Warcraft and all those. So I, I have my nerd credentials, uh, I guess, but just never crossed over into tabletop gaming until a couple years ago uh, in 2016 when this guy I went to college and law school with, uh, his name's Lance Kennedy. He actually posted on his Facebook wall a YouTube battle report that someone else had filmed of one of his games, uh, this guy named Andrew Heinrich, who's uh, a San Antonio guy. And I saw it posted and was like, oh, this is cool. What is this? So I watched it and then messaged him and he was telling me about it. Um, and he's like, yeah, you should just go down to the local game store. Um, there's a guy in my club, his name's Aaron Chapman. Uh, he'll give you a game. And so I just went down there, um, with some blank bases that Aaron had given me. And, you know, you'd think it'd be a friendly, friendly first game teaching me the rules, but that's not Aaron's style. So, so he just, he crushed me, um, as you would expect, but I stuck with it, uh, got myself an army and uh, been playing ever since. So it's kind of my origin story. Yeah, that's really uh, interesting. Um, so had you done anything, because obviously Kings of War has that more artistic element too in terms of or any tabletop game with painting and things like that. Had you done anything like that before or it had primarily been computer games? No, not at all. Not at all. And that, and that was the most intimidating part of getting into the hobby. Um, is how do I, I have no idea how to paint or put models together. My first army was not great, and I just tried, tried to keep improving with each new army. But, yeah, I'd, I'd never done anything like that before. And so now, are you nicer on new players than Aaron was on you? <laughs> I, I think I'm just nicer in general than Aaron. 
and so then, is Kings of War the only tabletop gaming scene you've been a part of since you started? Yeah, it is. It is. I I don't have you know I'm one of the few I guess people who never played Warhammer, um, and I haven't I haven't branched out to anything else since I started playing Kings of War. So this is this is my only game. Yeah, great. And any desire to do so, or you're just happy to stick with Kings? I think if everybody that was around me switched to something else, I would consider it. But no, Kings is, is it for me. So moving on to your, your general Kings of War credentials. So how long ago was that intro game with, with Aaron? How long have you been playing? So my first tournament was Lone Wolf 2017. So it's been about three three or four years. Yeah, and so I, I started playing in 2017, 60th out of 80 or something at Lone Wolf, but then my very next tournament, um, I got second overall somehow. And since then, I've pretty much been in the top 10 at most tournaments that I go to. Yeah, so that's a pretty rapid rise from 60th to second. <laughs> <laughs> it was a much smaller tournament, but but yeah, it was, it was encouraging for sure. Yeah, great. And so what armies do you primarily play? I mean, in, in COVID times, maybe let's remove the UB where you can play everything. <laughs> what um, yeah. what, what armies do you primarily play on the tabletop? So I I almost exclusively played Basileia. That's what I started with. Since then, I branched out uh, to orcs. I have an orc army that I put together with uh, all Lord of the Rings miniatures. I've only taken that to one tournament, but I, I do have it. And then for third edition, I have a, a new undead army that's all Mantic. That's part of our, our dojo club's uh, all Mantic challenge where everybody built their own uh, 90% Mantic army. Yeah, great. So you found Basilia too hard, so decided to go easy mode with undead, did you? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, can't, they took away my low high. I, you know, it was just too too emotional for me to go go back to them yet maybe mm. soon but i had to move on to something different you know we used, to, we used to have a a, a basilian or basilia or basilia now we have a third way to pronounce it if you listen to the audio the awesome audiobook of steps to deliverance but we used to have a um basilia mafia facebook chat thread that was me tom kyle timberlake and chris fisher and they've all left the hegemony i banished them and now oh. I, I am the last one left playing uh, Yeah, I live vicariously through Jeremy. We talk, you know, weekly about about how it's going with his Basilians. So, mm. um, and do you tend to you tend to not mix and match, Tom? You tend to kind of stick with uh, what you're working on for quite a period of time. I mean, obviously, Jeremy has been he's been playing and painting his Basilia since time began. What about yourself? You, you'll just go with it over a long period of time. Yeah, for me, it's I, I want to get a couple tournaments in with a, an army that I've painted to kind of get my money's worth, so to speak. And so I'll, whenever I finish a new army, I, I typically play that for at least a year. Um, but that's just for tournaments, you know, on practice games at, a, at the local store or on Universal Battle. I almost never play the army that I – that's my current tournament army. Uh, um, do Dojo play just games, do they? <laughs> usually it's the next nasty thing that aaron or 
or Brad McKay or, or whoever's coming up with. And so sometimes I'll, you know, I'll have to play my tournament army against those things because they're just super nasty. Uh, yeah. Am I right in that you took Brother Mark to the last Masters? Yeah, that is, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was basically my Vaseline army, uh, just without Alohi, because I don't think they're, they're a good unit. And I just, I tried and tried to, you know, from October to about December to come up with a, a list that I thought was good. And finally, I just threw my hands up and played a Brother Mark. So whether that was a good idea or not, I don't know. Probably not considering my record <laughs> at the Masters, but... Mm. It was a good list. I agree. It's a bit of a shame with things about Alohi and or Alohi and Dracons and things like that, isn't it? I was listening to um, the Unplugged Radio guys on there when they were talking about alignment and talking about how some of these units got hit big time and it's mostly because of the ally system, right, that we ended up with this smashing of them because they were being taken as allies originally and, and it's a bit of a shame, I think, particularly when Mantic do make models for them. Yeah, I think I think in general it's the Mantic and the RC. You're trying to get away from things that can, basically, things that can take off a unit in one go. So whether that's mass war machines or you know shooting, piercing, long range shooting, um, you know, or super hard hitting alpha strike units. So I don't mind that. I think in general that's that's good for the game. But in some instances, maybe they just went a little bit too far the other way. Mm. Yeah, I also don't think it's too bad if there's only one or two things that can do it, right? But, yeah, anyway, we'll see what happens over time. (laughs) Um, So you said you tend to kind of stick with your armies for about a year. What? So you guys obviously ran the dojo tournament uh, most recently, and it's been hard to come across other tournaments recently. But over the last few years, what, what have you done best at and with what armies? So let's see, I won't go too far back, but last year I started off the year playing Bass and Lands uh, again, this, but this time with the, the infamous double formation list, so the, the Knight formation and the Elohi formation. Uh, I took that to a, a tournament here in the state of Arkansas, which is in our U.S. South region, and I went 5-1 and one there, lost to Brad, um, on the Brad McCain, my club mate, who was soon to be the win the U.S. Masters the month after, uh, to his nasty chariot and dragon list. Uh, so I got, I think I got third at that tournament. Um, then I went to Lone Wolf a couple months later, lost to Brad again on the top table, um, and ended up like tenth or something. And then let's see, I got third general at Bayou that year, and then I got second overall at Alamo that year. Um, so that was my tournament season last year, and that was all with Basileo, pretty much the same list at each tournament, you know, varied based on the points levels, but but essentially the same core. And then, like you said, I took Brother Mark to, to Masters this year. Didn't, didn't go great uh, for various reasons. Uh, and then for for Dojo GT a couple months ago, uh, I took the undead for the first time and lost to my clubmate. And this is a team losing to clubmates on the top top table. I lost to Dustin Howard and ended up fifth overall at that one. It always stings a bit, doesn't it, when you're top table and then 
get smacked down <laughs> in the last <laughs> round and you end up not, not even podiuming when you were close to podiuming. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then I played Abyssal Dwarves in the in the Cola Arms tournament um, and lost to Tom Robinson, you know, in the second to last round top table. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, you know, it's a funny thing about Masters. You know, Tom and I have talked about this a lot in the past, right? Where uh, the level of play is so high, really, it just comes down to like one or two rolls. Like I know Tom and I played in round two. And it came down to if there was no turn seven, Tom beats me. And if there was a turn seven, I beat him. And I got a turn seven and I won. But it just really comes down to some of these really top, top events where you're playing against great players. Really, those one or two handful of dice rolls can really determine uh, an outcome. Yeah. And every, yeah, especially that kind of tournament, every single game you have is a super tough game. It's, it's kind of incredible. Yeah, I mean, you can go like one and four and then face like, okay, who am I playing round six at Masters? And it's someone who like wins tournaments all the time. You know, there's there, there's there's nowhere to hide. Um, you know, yeah. I'm, curious, I'm curious, Tom, before we get into sort of your initial thoughts when you're building an army, I know you, I know Felix, um, I know a couple other players, Steve uh, talked about a lot, uh, started playing Kings of War with no real Warhammer fantasy background. I'm curious, does that, when you hear people kind of compare the game to Warhammer Fantasy, do you, are you interested in what they're saying? Does that sort of just fly over your head? Or what's that like sort of playing in a game system that has so many people that are refugees from a previous system? <laughs> uh, there is a little bit of an element of, you know, your friend talking about his ex-girlfriend for the millionth time. <laughs> like, okay, okay, just get over it, you know. Um but I don't, you know, I don't. I just don't participate in those conversations really because I have nothing to add. But I, I get, you know, the grudge that people hold. Uh, I, you know, I've I've read up on what happened, and so I get it. But you, you've never been purple sunned either, so that's something <laughs> that you can. Uh, what about you, Matt? I'm curious. In Australia, do you guys have any people in the in the scene that are new to gaming and Kings of War is their first game? Are you guys? Would you say like 99% refugees or what's it like in Australia? I think we're heavily refugees. Um, some people not for long, like myself, I, I wasn't playing. Like I'd only been back into Warhammer for a little while and barely played when I was a kid. But the, primarily a lot of refugees um, from various, not not all from 8th. Like So we had some people come back for to King's after skipping 8th where they went to things like War Machine um, or, yeah, whenever the whole pre-measuring thing changed but and we've got a couple of new ones recently actually who have no tabletop gaming experience background at all and and lockdowns kind of i guess had them searching for other things but no primarily warhammer background cool yeah i mean that's a lot of us too here in uh california is are mostly uh refugees i just wonder sometimes as we're going to talk about army uh development and army uh, list building if coming to kings of war is a fresh perspective and not having played warhammer uh, i'm curious if that influences the type of armies that you make because often we hear people get frustrated with armies when the mantic version of the army doesn't build or play or construct like the sort of spiritual you know janitor from the uh fantasy warhammer fantasy universe so i'm curious as we talk about this stuff tom if that kind of you know seeps in at all that sort of fresh perspective because of not playing warhammer fantasy i'm curious to hear your thoughts on that yeah yeah i think one way that it, it definitely affected things was 
I was pretty much the only person I knew uh, at any of the tournaments I went to that played Basilea because it wasn't they didn't have a direct Warhammer port. Um, you know, everybody had their chaos armies that they turned to Varinger or, or Dwarves or Elves. But um, so I think that was a little bit of an advantage to play an army that nobody else was playing because it wasn't a, a direct uh, port from Warhammer. So. Yeah, I mean, again, I'll, I'll go back to that unplugged episode. Have you? Have either of you two listened to it? Yeah, I have. Yeah, no, I haven't yet. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great episode, and um, they were talking. Uh, you know, I don't know these guys personally, obviously, like you guys might. So I get confused who's who. <laughs> but they were talking about the difference in elf flavor <clears throat> with. Um, you know, the Mantic Elves versus what they used to know with the Swordmasters of Hoeth. And for me, for me, I still think there's enough flavour in the units in terms of I think they've lost some flavour and they don't necessarily match their fluff. I've said it before with the with the Elf Archer thing. Like, I don't think it matches what's written about them. But when you look at the stat lines, there's still difference there. And I think you just, with Mantic, you just need to use your imagination a bit more because I think with Warhammer, and they mentioned this also, that... A lot of that difference besides the rich fluff history was created with, you know, a million special rules, which the combinations of such, you can get some really good outcomes like Mikael and the Dark Elves. I think he's really well um, in the, you know, Twilight Kin, sorry, that he's really well represented. But I think it is it is hard to, to always get that that nice, you know, feeling of what you want and you kind of just need to use your imagination a little bit more. Some of it is like, you bring up a really good point, Matt. Some of it, and I think that Steve was talking about this with Matt James in that recent episode. If you guys haven't listened to it yet, it's really good. Where it's like, we all understand what elite means, right? Whereas in Warhammer Fantasy, one unit may be Master of Blades. When you're attacking, reroll ones. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where there were similar rules that are that are mo- more codified and uh categorized in kings of war where in warhammer fantasy people would have shades of those rules that would all be slightly different so i think some of the flavor and depth is there in kings of war it just doesn't it, it, it's done in a little bit more you know uh simple or uh contextual way so you know a little bit easier about what the special rules do um, but i had never really thought about it, that in, in that way is that often you know in Warhammer Fantasy, units had similar rules, but they were just different enough that they and they were named differently that it then kind of gave you the impression of all this um, complexity to the game. Yeah, but also made it far harder for your opponent to understand, right? Because they didn't have simple oh, names. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I know when I came to Kings of War, um, was I started getting back in in the summer of Sigmar, so that was summer of 2016, and I hadn't played Warhammer Fantasy since fifth or sixth edition. And I remember the first couple of games of Kings of War I had, I was like. This is like the version of Warhammer Fantasy that I wish they had made mm. forever ago. Just from the simplicity and the able, you can play two or three games and not be, you know, overblown. But but the one element that it was missing, right, which is I think a total valid critique, and it's a critique that I think they've been making great strides in, which is the the old world had 25, 30 years of time spent developing, right, along with video games and novels, and it's just a really, really, really rich world and often i hear you know uh, people you know those old school people who just love that world so much even now when they play kings in their head they're playing warhammer fantasy just with the different rules you know but they're playing in that world um 
But I think with with Vanguard, and I think if you really take time and read the third edition rulebook, and, and with the novels and everything, I mean, Steps to Deliverance is a really solid story. Uh, I've been really enjoying listening to that to, on audiobook. I mean, I don't know what you guys think, but I think as far as world developing, they're they're moving in the right direction. Oh, absolutely. I think if you compare third edition armies to second edition armies and even discount the extra fluff they've given us, there is actually far more flavor than what we had before. I mean, I still think some of the army-wide, in inverted commas, stuff could be a little bit better. But I think even if you eliminate some of the fluff, I think we are definitely going in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it just add a couple more magic spells and, uh, you know, a couple more units to some of the factions that, that need it. Um, I think, you know, they're doing great. Yeah, and I think there's different ways to do that. You know, I know we've talked a lot about it would be cool to have not just legendary characters, but maybe legendary units. Like, I think that could be really interesting. Um, like we were talking about once, it would be cool to have a legendary horde of mummies for Empire of Dust. You know, if you want to introduce kind of cool, flavorful units or, you know, kind of a la regiments of renown, I guess. But if, if there's certain things that you feel would be broken in a in a spammable context, just stack this, put that one on it. That's a, a, a rule that everyone who plays Kings is really familiar with, the taking only one of. Yeah, and you get flavor from these things with a history, right? I think that's great. And and again, it's in that episode. I think, how many things do we... Uh, Ashley is quite insightful. Ashley was on that episode and she suggested that as well. Um you know, she's creating everything in Kings these days, isn't she? Thick chaff, you know. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think that's 100% right, Jeremy. You know, that a few more of those things, and I think we'd be, we'd be right there in Flavortown. Yeah, and, and not like not the whole smorgasbord. Just, like, give me a couple apps, you know. Give me a little, uh, a little side salads, you know. Just a little mm. bit here, a little bit there. <laughs> because I don't think you want to get too far on the boat away mm. from I understand what everything in this rule does, uh, everything in this game does by the, the, the ease of rules, of understanding the rules. But I think we're, we can have a little bit more uh, spice here and there. Um, a little bit of seasoning. Yeah, a little bit. Um, well, you mentioned it before, Tom, uh, on how sort of when you first were playing um, Basileans, it was kind of fun to sort of play an army that not a lot of people played. Uh, so when you're first thinking about playing an army, is is sort of how many people play that army? Uh, does that kind of come into your idea of what you want to pick? Is it is it how you think maybe the army might play or a misunderstanding on if it's good or bad or sort of what first draws you to an army? Um, I don't really look too much what other people are playing other than I don't want to play the exact same thing that the guys that I'm playing, you know, on a weekly basis are, are taking. So I typically try to pick a faction that that's not going to be a mirror match. So I, I don't think those are very fun games oftentimes. So usually for me, it's, it's more about model, model availability. Um, cause I, I'm not, super into doing a bunch of conversions and I don't have, you know, a garage full of models uh, just sitting around from, from Warhammer, although you know, I'm quickly uh, developing quite the collection uh, even three or four years in. But so for me, it's really what kit, you know, who can I go to? I'll go to Mantic first. Do they produce a full line of, or full enough line of, of models to me for me to make an army for um, like my work army, I just got everything from the GW Lord of the Rings range. Um, and then my undead, that, that was all Mantic. Uh, again, I uh, picked undead because I knew it would be, uh, an easy army to collect. So, 
Um, that's the, primarily where I begin. And then I sort of look around and see who's playing it and, you know, what kind of styles they're playing. Like, for example, when I was thinking about what to do with Undead, we, in our region, we have a, a guy, Patrick Zor Allen, who's a former U.S. master and now on the rules committee. And he has a very uh, specific Undead build that he's had great success with, with a bunch of ghoul troops and the dish kings and things. Yeah, the dish canoe. Uh, which you can read on an article on Dash 28 about how that army works. But so I just make sure I do something different than him because I don't want to copy him, um, even though, you know, he wouldn't take offense or anything, but I just want to do something different. So, you know, for me, it's what, what, where, where can I get the models? Um, start thinking about a build that no one else I know has really done, um, and then go from there. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. It's, you can't so there's something nice right for out of the box i know like uh, matt loves his shibor dwarves i know my basilean army has bits and pieces from like seven continents or whatever of like shields from this country and heads from this you know but sometimes it's nice right to just be able to buy a box of miniatures open it up and assemble it and they look good and they fit your army and then you're you're done basically and not necessarily having to convert everything yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I'm sure as I say in the hobby, and I'll I'll get more into some of that. But just as I mean, I'm not new anymore, but newish guy, don't have a ton of time to to put armies together. I just need to to make them look to a good standard and and build quickly. So that's kind of what I go for. And and so when you're building, are you thinking about? Um like a, a play style theme or maybe even like a fluff theme? Are you thinking about any sort of backstory for your army? Are you, are you thinking about this army is going to be combined arms or it's going to be alpha strike? Or do you think about like theme uh, when, when you're first conceptualizing an army? And the theme of winning doesn't count, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> the, the dojo. The, Alex Kuss, the theme is winning, Alex Kuss quote. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, unless I'm building... Uh, a, a themed army themed around like for example in the in a ub tournament i'm in right now always sunny i have a basically all damn buster list everything in the the list has the amphibian keyword um and that's just you know for fun um but if i'm not if i'm not doing something like that then the theme for me comes with the with the basing and the color choices for the models um and not so much you know, I don't create a story in my head that I'm, I, I try to come up with before I, I decide which units are going in there. For, for me, it's really more just which units work well together, where are the synergies, you know, what's, what's powerful in, in the meta or what I think the meta will be. And, um, you know, th those kind of things. And so the, the theme is really, mostly secondary where it comes on the modeling side and not so much the list building side. Sure. And are you ever inspired? I know we've had guests in the list builder studio before who will, you know, like Britain's famous for saying he can't watch kingdom of heaven because then he's got to make like a Templar based uh, kingdoms of men army from being inspired from that awesome movie. Is there anything, are you ever like inspired by, you know, I, I know you mentioned your orcs from Lord of the Rings where you're watch like a fantasy movie or see a piece of art and be like, wow, that would be like a really cool army. Not really, not really. I, I mean, for me, it's the first uh, faction I dug 
choose in any game, whether it's tabletop or a computer game or whatever, is always just the uh, you know the good guys, the the paladins or whoever. Um, so that's why I immediately went to Basilea when I was choosing my first army. That's just kind of my default. Uh, I don't know what that says about me or, or doesn't say about me, but that's always my first my first army. And then typically I'll I'll try to choose something that's different enough than than that kind of standard. Um, so for undead, I, it was wasn't any any uh, piece of art or, or movie or anything. It was just more well, I want to I want to have a surge army, and because I want to play around with surge, and so I. Empire Dust or, or uh, Undead were kind of my choices. Um, so that's that's really more where I go. Yeah, that's funny that you said, like, my Basilean army is very much influenced by uh, World of Warcraft and Stormwind of, the, of the, like, the white and blues and all the lion iconography. So that was really kind of, uh, and I always played Alliance, so that was, like, what brought me to that army, too, of... of something nice in this like dark world to be the good guys it's kind of nice you know what i mean yeah yeah i don't know what it is everybody loves loves the evil armies i don't know what that what that says about them but it does seem to be they're dead inside is what it it says they're dead inside so (laughs) um so when when you're starting uh an army is there anything like fundamentally you like to do like whether or not it's a good faction it's a bad faction um different styles is there any like fundamental things that when you first start list building you're like okay i want this or i want that or any sort of fundamental things concepts you like to use so at least so i usually start with the the units that are going to be kind of my damage dealers um and then build out the build out from there um in in third edition what i've been kind of my principle is i usually take three or four quote-unquote hammer units and at least one of those um if i'm taking three and at least two of them if i'm taking four uh, have to be something that's not affected by phalanx and so for example in the brother mark list that i took to masters i had two over uh, palisgar hordes and then added on to night regiments in the undead list i have i have two soul reaver infantry regiments and then two white hordes and so it's just you know phalanx is so powerful it well in especially in some lists like salamanders or kingdoms of men where you can combine phalanx with another really good defensive role like defense five or ensnare that if you're trying to build an all comers list, you got to make sure you have something that can deal with those units. Um, Cause I think it's the most paper rock scissors of, of the rules um, in the game. So I, that's kind of how I start. Um, as far as other principles, not really, not really. I mean, I'm, it's funny cause most of the lists I, I end up building end up looking pretty similar. Um, like what I told you, Jeremy, before that I, after I got done building and playing my undead list, I realized, well, I just made, I made my Vaseline list just in a, in a different army. So maybe there's some hidden principles that are, you know, subconscious, but as far as things I think about, um, it's really just make sure you can have something to deal with phalanx. Uh, and then, you know, you got to figure out what, what the core of your army is 
uh, you know, typically what, what your center force is going to be, you know, how are you going to protect your, your slower hammers that are probably going to go in, in that center force, um, whether that's a chaff or, or, heavy, you know, thick chaff, um, and then pick your, pick your flanking units that kind of do some zone control around that, that center group. So I kind of build inside out. Yeah. Okay. And, and I mean, that's, I think it's interesting to consider whenever we've done a list building studio so far, it does seem that, that people have this inherent style. So I think it's interesting to hear you say, you know, that you've, you've built your previous army just with another skin. Cause I, I, I actually think a lot of people end up that way unless the army itself doesn't give you that options, but may, maybe you're actually drawn to that army because you know, it fits your play style. Yeah, and I think the first time you build a list in a new army, you kind of take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, um, you know, some cavalry, some infantry, uh, some heroes, and so I think it that that plays a part too, because you, at least for me, I don't want to build some crazy off the wall list, because um, if I do, it's probably going to be because a unit's undercosted or something. Uh, I'll be trying to take advantage of that and then I'll just end up nerfed. So <laughs> I try, I try to take good units, but not like some other people I know do and, and really, you know, try to abuse a certain unit. Uh, I typically play mostly, mostly balanced lists. Okay. So we hear a lot about um, chaff when we're talking about the game, whether that be, you know, how many chaff units you have or the style of chaff uh, where there's obviously different, uh, we could think of chaff in different types. How, how do you consider that in your list building? Do you consider a set number of chaff units or does it depend on their role? And also do you consider, you know, how you deal with your opponent's version of those? Yeah, so uh, the current... U.S. master, uh, a guy named Eric Trowbridge, who's uh, from Ohio, I believe. He's from the Midwest region. Uh, he's the guy who took three Great Axe hordes and six Orkling regiments in front of him, and then a bunch of other stuff. Uh, completely out of the box, crazy list. And he said, in his opinion, uh, third edition is the version of Chaff, and that what really matters is you know, how, how good is your chaff, which is a very interesting thing to say. And I haven't totally figured out exactly what he means by that, um, or whether or not I think it's true, but I know other extremely good players. Like I, I referenced Patrick Allen before he, he always plays with a ton of chaff. Um, usually he's, he's told me he likes to play with six units. So six units of chaff. So whether that's six school troops or in the salamander list, he has six ember sprites, um, you know, going super heavy on chaff is not something that I've done, uh, myself, but I, I can't get it out of my mind that maybe that's, that's the way to go for me. You know, I, I look at what chaff is available on the list that I'm going to play. Um, and if the chaff has, you know, it's pathfinder, fly, uh, and nimble and or nimble, any combination of those, then I'll, I'll consider it. And usually about two, two units of, so that's either, you know, gargoyles or harpies, snow foxes are another example. Any of those 
units that have any of those three rules, I think, are extremely good because you can hide them easily on the first turn or two, and then because they're so quick, uh, they can fly and move out the double th- through terrain. Um, it's easy to to move them through your own units to block up the uh, opponent when you need to. Uh, other types of chaff, I I don't really like. Uh, like for example, in the undead, they have the death pack, which has nimble, but it's only speed six, so it's difficult to hide it and then shoot it forward where you need it, because uh, often it'll clip terrain and you'll be able, only be able to move up six inches, for example. So I don't I don't necessarily have a theory on chaff. Other than I like, I'll, if I have a, access to a good chaff unit, adding in two is never a bad idea. And, you know, the way to go might just be Eric or Pat's six chaff uh, theory. So mm. it's it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I mean, with Eric and Pat, I mean, they say six units of chaff. I guess the other way you can look at it is it's just amount of dro- drops and therefore unit strength, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and then look at your own. Um, Champion Jeff Trish, he's he's another guy that I should mention that does this too. I mean, yep. the list that he's playing in um, this Always Sunny UB tournament I was talking about earlier, I think he has like five regiments of needle fangs or something. And he just has, I think he has 17 drops or uh, all with unit strength, but none, you know, no super powerful units other than two void lurkers. And so I think there's a lot of merit to that. Mm. approach and i think again that has to fit your style right that's what jeff's done for a a long time and we don't always see the best of him on ub because he's happy to experiment a bit more but you know pretty much on the tabletop you really wouldn't see him playing with an individual you know it's all cheap and it's all scoring right yeah right Okay, and what about are you always then so if you are playing an army that doesn't fit that kind of idea of chaff that you like do you still consider how you're going to deal with your opponents and 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 how do you go about that or or conversely is it not a consideration for you yeah so you have you you always have to figure out how you're going to protect your your more valuable units um you know especially the the hammer units quote unquote and there's a couple there's a couple ways to do that um screening with Super cheap chaff is one way. Uh, the, another way is to have units with uh, one unit strength, so you can't overrun through them, kind of run as blockers in front of them. So, for example, you know, if Ogre, Ogre Heroes are a really good example of this. If you just put, um, you know, a Boomer Sergeant or, or something in such a way that you, your opponent can only get one unit into a siege breaker horde, for example, um, that's that's another totally valid way uh, to to chaff. Um, even heavier units, more expensive units like giants, are another good example. If you're in my orc army, uh, if I were to to rebuild it um, or update it, I should say, you know, I have a bunch of long axe hordes in that list, and even even with defense five families. If you don't prevent multi-charges against it, there are opponents who can put enough units into it to pop it in one go, and then you're in trouble. So a way to prevent that is to use blockers like a giant, where you just put the giant in front 
of the long axor, and then that limits the amount of units that can get in on a multi-charge. It makes it much more difficult to to pop that uh, long ax unit in one go. So you can use screening chaff like most people do. You can use blockers if you have the right units. Um, the other way, and really what I've been leaning towards, and it's something that I picked up from my club mate, Dustin Howard, is using your unit's own bases uh, in such a way to to limit the number of units that can get in, to limit multi-charges. And that's, if you've ever played against him, he does that so well. Um, and I think it's something that not enough people take time to learn how to do. But to answer your question, yeah, you, you always have to consider how, how am I going to deal with someone who just brings an overwhelming amount of units, you know, and sits just outside my charge range if I'm not fast enough to, per, to prevent that. So that's always a consideration when you're choosing which units to go in your list. Mm. And, and what about that kind of leads into number of drops? Uh, when you're considering building your army, uh, is the number of drops specific to the army you're using or does it depend on the units you like whether you're taking a more elite army or a horde army and that would obviously fit with your theme do you do you consider drops in your list not not really other than you know you you don't want to go under a certain number unless you know exactly what you're doing with every one of those units i think uh you know you Generally, you want it, more units is is better, and often your list can be improved by, uh, you know, if you build a list and then it's at 12 units or something, often you can improve it by splitting one of your bigger units up into two smaller units, and it might not immediately jump out at you on paper why why that's better, but when you get on the tabletop and, you know, you'll realize the value of just having more units um, just gives you. So you more options, and yep. so I like to have as many jobs as possible. But yeah, well, you mentioned a minimum number there. So, do you personally have a minimum number? I, yeah, I think at twenty two fifty and up, if you're going under twelve, uh, you're you're probably going the wrong way. And honestly, nowadays you probably want to be around fourteen at, at those point levels. Mm-hmm. Um, at nineteen ninety five or two thousand. You can knock one or two units off, but but yeah, most of my lists are about fourteen drops these days. Okay, and when you're building a list, are you thinking about it in terms of combat groups? I mean, you mentioned before that one of your foundational concepts is kind of how things synergize and how they work together. Do you break your list up into combat groups, and you kind of say, "Well, these guys always work together, and these guys always work together"? So the way I look at it is everything in in the army is kind of one combat group it's all part of I, I look at it as like a network of units that work together so you know in a network you have your your fundamental units uh you know your nodes so to speak um, and then you have the connections between those and so what i look at is okay i, I have this hammer unit What's what's the unit that's going to go? That's going to be the chaff for that unit, and then you know how am I how am I going to um, or what's going to pair with to to kind of move up the board and protect it by by using each other's base sizes or or you know uh, bases to kind of do that trick. Um, 
what's going to be on the flank to come in and hit whatever bounces off that unit. Um, and so I try to build it in such a way where all of the units support each other. Um, and then one or two units, or maybe, you know, depending on what points levels you're playing at, some more units just go on the flanks, which aren't necessarily connected to that center group. Um, but you know, they're, they're just off on their own, but mostly I, I deploy in the same way, exactly, you know, the same way every single time. Um, and I'm usually pretty, pretty tight with my deployments. I don't like to put units on far flanks unless they're flying monsters or, or knuckers or something like that. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I look at it. I think if you look at it, like, these are my left flank units, these are my right flank units, and this is my center units, you're probably going to spread yourself out too much. And so really you should be thinking like, okay, this foot caster can move five and then cast Bane Chant um, 12 inches. So seven, I, want to, I want to have my units within 17 inches of my you know, necromancer that has Bane Chant, for example, for my undead list. Um, or this unit can charge... Um, let's see, I don't know, this, this distance. And so I want to put my chaff unit or my anvil, you know, within 16 inches of that. So that's more how I think about it and not necessarily trying to build self-sufficient, self-contained battle groups. And what about when it comes to inspiring and incorporating that into your list? Does that tend to vary between armies or talk to us about how you, how you incorporate that at the list design phase? Yeah, you, you always want at least three, I think, or at least two. Um, I can't imagine a scenario where, unless you're playing Night Stalkers, uh, you're going to go below that. I think really the, the only thing to say with inspiring, other than you know, take, take at least three of it, is that don't you just remember to not, don't really count your dragons or even like your very um, fighty combat individuals like, a vampire lord that I have in my undead list. I don't really count him as an inspiring unit, even though he is. So often in my list, I'll have four inspiring units, three that are really going to hang hang out around my units, and then one or two that are going to be off on their own and just kind of happen to have inspiring. So I think that's that's pretty, and then that's pretty much true for every list. When you're looking at magical artifacts, you know, we've had people in the List Builder Studio before who talk about, like, you know, I'm not taking this unit unless it comes with this item, right? The unit automatically costs 25 more points or whatever because if you're getting it, you're you're taking it with that item. How do you think about magical artifacts? Um, are they add-ons, extra stuff? Are they part of the core aspect of the unit? Or speak a little bit to that. Sure. So there's what I call, like, the big five items which are strength sharpness elite vicious and the the strider boots where those are just kind of on on the next level um, of of effectiveness and so that if you can add those in if you have the points those are kind of the first place that i look um the only other one that's probably up there is the the conjurer staff where you have a caster with two spells and it's just such a such an efficient choice that I, I've seen it in yeah, probably 
60 or 70 percent of the list that I, I play and that I have. Um, but, you know, what I find is as you get more confident as a player, you take fewer artifacts. I think that's probably true in general. Um, and you just learn to rely on, you know, this unit's good enough. I only, I don't need this unit to be super killy. And so I think as you, as you get better, as you get more experience, you'll probably take fewer, fewer artifacts. For me, my rule of thumb is I don't take more, I, I don't put more than 10% of my list. Well, let's see, actually 5% of my lists points into artifacts. Um, so for, I think the it of a 2000 point list, you don't want to put more than a hundred points into artifacts, for example. I think that's a good general rule. You can break it if you, if you have a good reason to, but that's kind of how I think about it. What do you think about the new to third edition, the tiered cost? I mean, for items, you mentioned a couple, right? Brute strength, uh, blessing of the gods or, or sharpness, you know, these those items that have different costs for different unit size. What's your thoughts on those? <laughs> I mean, I think they honestly, they might be a little too good uh, on some, some of the units that get that regiment price point. Uh, like, why would you not put elite and vicious on solar or infantry? I mean, it's just ridiculously good, you know, or, or chariots that get to have the same amount of attacks, uh, in regiment size, uh, you know, they, they really benefit from those, those unit, or I'm sorry, from those uh, artifacts. And so I, I think it's a decent change, but you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the RC eventually adjusts those, those points, uh, cost for those items upwards because it's just so efficient sometimes. Yeah, because like you give a, a great example of imagine you're giving elite to a Soul Reaver infantry unit that has 25 attacks. So per attack, you're paying way less for that item than let's say you put elite on a unit that has 16 attacks. You're paying way more for that item per attack. Right. That's, that's sometimes how I like to think about items um, and stuff like that is like value per instance of use. So in 25 attacks, there's a chance I could use that item 25 times. You know, hopefully, unless you're playing on UB, you're not going <laughs> to roll. You're not going to roll 25 ones, right? But I mean, but the the idea is still there. Is like and like you said, conjurer staff. I mean, to me, that's probably one of the best items in the game for uh, when you when you actually really get down to value town. And think about what's the value that item is giving you. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, definitely. So, that, I mean, that's another a good tip is you, you want to look at your list, whatever faction you're playing, and see which which uh, which items can get that regiment price. Um, and if they have already have 18 attacks or 20 attacks or something, often that's a, a great use of, of your points. And so, um, yeah. The other thing is, if you're taking Cav, just a tip is don't take Pathfinder anymore. Take Elite or Vicious. I mean, it's just always going to be more useful uh, over the turns, you know, more, more turns of the game than Pathfinder will be. So just break that version two habit and just put Elite instead of Pathfinder. You know, I've been moving there to that way. You know, we have had a lot of talks about about this very issue. Um, because I run double double knight regiments in my Basilean army, and I've gone back and forth between a Pathfinder and Strider, 
you know, this, that, and the other thing. And finally, I just decided to go, especially with knights at the 16 attack point as opposed to the 18 or 20 attack point where over the aggregate, it's like the offensive items are just better. These are certain games that you won't ever have to make a hinder charge, and then now all those items aren't doing you anything. Right, or you, you put Pathfinder on it, so you feel like you have to put it in terrain to get use out of it. Um, you know, that's the other thing, is if I'm taking a horde now, like, uh, you know, a little he horde, for example, or or some other unit that, that doesn't get that discounted price, often it's going to be better to not not put those super expensive artifacts or just not as efficient. I mean, you can still do it and, and be fine, but just for me, I'm really uh, reticent to do that now. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, I, if I, if I do put a, a, an artifact on a unit that doesn't get that discounted price, there's a, probably a pretty good reason for it. But in general, I, I try not to do that now. And you bring up a really interesting point, which is like, what if your one night of path, your night with Pathfinder, what if the forest is in the least optimal place for them to be deployed? But you're going to have that gut, that gut reaction, like you hit me in the knee with your little bonking. So I got to deploy my knights. <laughs> you know, I, I got to deploy my knights there. So that's an interesting point of not allowing, not allowing items to sort of force you to deploy a unit in a way that you wouldn't necessarily want to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've talked a little bit about drops. Um, how so, sort of what's your thinking on scoring units in unit strength? Is there like a don't go below this line or you can't ride this ride? Or is is it just totally dependent on what army you're building? Or what's your thoughts on unit strength? Um, you know, I don't really care too much about what my unit strength is. Uh, I've seen people do just fine with uh, unit strength that's you know under the average i think in uh, version two the average was probably about 18 i would say like a 2250 list now i would say that's bumped up to 22 is kind of the average that i see out there and so if i'm if i'm around there i'm fine with it i don't purposely try to build in more unit strength just number like as far as pure number but what is extremely important is the units that have at least one unit strength so they're scoring units i mean that's for me i I like to run individual heavy for whatever reason often my list will have three four five individuals and i can make it work but it's just so much easier when you have everything in your in your uh, army can score especially in in version three, that's extremely important. And so when you can do that, have all your units or almost all your units being scoring, it's a, I think it's a huge advantage. Yeah. You know, after having played uh, Basilean for so long, I can't count how many times like Samacris or Nias or some sort of fast movable, you know, unit strength, um, can do you know one thing that comes to mind is Keith Randall's been playing Order of the Green Lady a lot, and he's got like I don't know a bajillion unit strength one flying monsters, <laughs> and again that really gives you a lot of unit strength to play with, and and that really leads into like scenario play right, um, which I, I think is one of the real strong points of Kings of War is that they're really great dynamic interesting scenarios. Um, so when you're building lists, are you thinking about how your lists are going to 
perform in objective scenarios or board space control scenarios? Or are you kind of thinking about how, you know, who may be your loot token holders or stuff like that? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, just real quick on the unit, unit, uh, scoring flying units, some of the worst, like nastiest lists that we've seen, like for example, the, the goblin list with six war machines and then, uh, three wingets or the kingdoms of men list with six war machines and, you know, three flying wizards. Those lists are, I mean, the war machines get all the headlines, but I think what really makes them extremely effective and over the top is the fact that you get all that shooting and then you have just tiny units that you can't really, that your opponent can't really get to just fly and get uh, objectives at the end of the game. I mean, it's just, it's just so good. Um, so well, we talk a lot, we, we talk a lot about efficiency, right? There is no efficient way to deal with that type of uh, unit, especially when your good units are getting shot off the board. So it becomes like we talk a lot about um, uh, efficiency, and and I think you you it's sort of a trend you hear with 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 higher level players is they're looking for uh, what's the most efficient way I can do X Y or Z, and often the lists that that you struggle against are ways that present you with uh, things where there is no efficient way to deal with that, um, and then right, right off the bat you're you're losing that points trade right if it takes me six hundred points to deal with that two hundred point thing even if I kill it you're still winning. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Uh, but as far as scenarios, yeah, that's. I mean, it's such a huge part of the game. You you kind of have to to think about it, you know. And so there's a couple different things. So I I think almost all of the Kings of War scenarios in Third Edition want you to get to the center of the board. And so if you if you can dominate the center, uh, you're gonna be pretty far ahead in uh in an advantage in a lot of these scenarios you know but obviously invade or pillage don't necessarily have or the or the bluff scenarios they don't necessarily have it force you to the center of the board um but you can put you know you can still put objectives close enough together to kind of create that that, that center yourself um just through token placement and so I, I think if you're just looking, if you're trying to come up with a new list, build something that has a really, really strong center um, and then just a couple units on the flank to kind of do um, what some people call zone control, which is just, you know, make sure that dragon can't fly and flank your, your center force easily without, you know, taking a couple turns to do it. Um, and so I think that... That's kind of the way to go. And that, that plays into what I was saying earlier about kind of deploying all my units together as one battle group, because that often that's, you just want to have everything in the center anyway. Um, so that's, that's kind of the big thing that I think about with scenarios. The other thing is um, with push tokens, you know, you, you probably want at least one unit where it's not going to kill them to drop down to speed five. And my undead list, you know, I have my <clears throat> two soul reader regiments that I always put the tokens on. And even though they go down from speed five to speed six, they're always behind something else. And so they're not moving their full speed anyway. So it's not really a detriment for them. Um, and 
So you always want to keep that in mind. Who's going to be carrying your push tokens? Who's going to go get the loot tokens? Um, you know, the kind of the basic warrior unit in all in a lot of armies isn't spectacular for anything, but what they really are good at is just putting a cross from a loot token and either, you know, forcing your opponent to spend more resources than that, that units worth to kill them to stop them from just grabbing it. Um, so that's, that's something, another thing you want to think about. Uh, and then really other than that, it's, it's not so much list building. It's just learning how to play the scenarios. Um, the only other thing is that, the more unit strength, like we were just talking about, the more more units with the unit strength you can have, the easier the scenarios are going to be for you. So, I'm curious in in dealing with those scenarios, right? You talk about getting to the middle of the board. Uh, you know, we talked about those unit strength one flying um, scoring units that are so powerful. Um, what do you think about speed and maybe flyers in general? I mean, I know you talked before about in many ways, the undead list was like the two knight regiments, the two infantry hammers, a la very similar to how you ran Bass Lanes. Do you feel like an inclination towards wanting to have a certain amount of speed in, the, in an army? Or so what, have you, what are sort of your thoughts on, on speed in general? Um, you know, I think that you either... Well, it's never a bad idea to add like a dragon or something in. Um, but what I'm finding is that because the alpha strike potential in a lot of armies has been reduced um, by design, often getting the first charge is not as not as important as it as it could be in version two. And so I'm I'm kind of discounting speed a little bit these days. I mean. As far you know, and that's like trying to have a bunch of t- speed ten units. Um, it's still it's not a bad idea to have fast units, but for me, I'm I'm taking I almost never will take a dragon now, um, just because I think they're harder to get their points back with, and I'm not I'm not going to build a a speed line list really anymore. Um, so you you have to know how to deal with your opponent's speed um, for sure but there's tons of ways to do that that don't involve just taking fast units yourself so i don't know maybe i've been talking to dustin howard too much (laughs) no i I think you bring up (laughs) some interesting points and i'm curious as to maybe what matt's noticed in australia but it seems like to me the 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 meta has starting to maybe move a little bit more towards survivability and counterpunch and then just raw unit strength of being able to, since there are not really that many units or armies that can truly play the old school alpha where I'm going to charge you with everything on turn two and pick up half your army, where now it's a little bit more about trying to have unit strength, survive, and counterpunch. I mean, what's it been like in Australia sort of around the the, the alpha meta? I, I totally agree. I think um, when you look to include a dragon now, you kind of go, well, what else could I get for those points? Right, and most of the time, you could probably get something that does a significant hammer job, like for example, something like Ogre Palace Guard in the in the Basilea list, plus something else. And I think there definitely has been a shift towards the amount of drops in unit strength. So you you're seeing far less dragons on the table, and yes, it is hard 
or harder to get those points back unless you, you you really now more than ever because of the reduction in alpha strike in other components of the list like it is really never an option to put it in the front anymore whereas previously you might be able to put it in the front with something else but not as many armies have those combinations that still do that so i think you see when people are playing dragons they spend a lot of time you know getting them into the right position which means they're not getting used till the end of the game which is fine if that's your style but i think it it's we've certainly moved away from that style a bit overall and i know like the basilian dragon right it's probably too good in the fact that it's unkillable it's not too it's not too good in the fact that i'm going to take it and kill your whole army right because it's it is more difficult to get 75 millimeter base into a flank or into weird like into that special sweet spot where you're in, in between two arcs right and no one can see you and you can see everything that's much more difficult with a 75 millimeter base than the old school dragon base so granted your Basilean dragon is not going to die really unless you just totally mess up somehow or you want it to die for whatever reason but no longer are you charging it with to double a low high hordes or night hordes with elite and vicious or whatever the case is. Um, so I know in having played mine, if I didn't love the model and if I hadn't spent like two and a half months painting it, <laughs> I, it probably would be on the chopping block in my army. But, um, and I think yeah. also uh, another thing to say about that is, is the fact that phalanx is so much better now, uh, means you can't do what I, what I did in, uh, in version two, which is build an all speed list. So you don't reach that like critical mass of speed to really get, um, you know, to have the supporting units you need to really make those fast units effective. Um, and if you do, you're just risking getting blanked by, you know, a, a, a spear failing sword with ensnare or long axe or ceremonial guard or whatever. So I think another part of it is is the fact that you can't take. Uh, you at least if you follow the way I do it, you're going to build in some slower hammers that aren't affected by phalanx, and therefore you have fewer points to really play that speed game. So, yeah, and I mean it comes down to your choices in the army, right? The fact that when I've played with some um, Basilea lists, you know, I would still put the dragon in because if you want your opponent, it's also about the psychology, right? Because it is unkillable currently who knows what will happen in the next supplement yeah if you want your opponent to have to think about that for six turns and distract them with the dragon then that's also a legitimate tactic but yeah it just it just really changed i think in this edition how you use those flyers yeah i yeah i think you bring up a really great point where the dragon more now is about like can i get my opponent to turn more resources to face it you know is it gonna be just like like the ultimate anvil as opposed to a nimble hammer you know just the identity of the unit has changed yeah and the other thing too is as you as you get better and you start playing tougher opponents uh the you know one of the first things that people who have kind of made that leap to really good players learn is how to deal with speed and flyers um because you know you can't you can't just uh you're not always going to have outcharge other people and so that's one of the first skills or things you learn uh when you're kind of making that leap to a, a good player so it's not it's already tougher as you're playing tougher opponents to play that style um but i think i think that's another reason as well maybe everybody just has collectively across the community 
learned how to play a little bit better. And, and so they're finding it tougher for that to, to do the, the speed line. Yeah, I like that idea of like a, a progression and thought or a progression with how you see the game and different skill tiers. Like I know just understanding dice odds, what you, expectations for roles is sort of a key sort of building point when you first start playing. And then, like you said, how do I deal with speed? And then what you brought up earlier, which is using frontages to dictate charges. And I know that's something that Eric does really well in his list with all his characters and orklings and having units. And really what, what, what Tom means about that is you just, you don't just have one flush battle line. You have units that are either back a couple of millimeters or up a couple of millimeters because you're able at that point to really control how much space is available to charge. So then you can say, you know, I'm allowing that char- unit to charge, but you can't double charge me or triple charge me. So it's interesting to see these sort of um, spheres or levels of play that as you are, are getting better and better, you're sort of building a conceptual awareness about these different gameplay mechanics, dynamics, how they work. Yeah, for me now, that's I'm like obsessed with coming up with new formations like on the battlefield with different uh, different units. And when I see some another good player do something that I haven't thought of. I, I get really excited. I think that's kind of like the final frontier of, uh, of bettering your skills in this game uh, is figuring out how to do that. Cause it's, it's extremely powerful uh, when you do it right. Yeah. And well, you know, I'm be curious, you know, we have some questions here in a minute to talk about uh, deployment and deployment schemes, but just sort of wrapping up this section, you know, I'm curious what you think about, I feel, you know, we talked about uh, Elohi earlier, and I really feel that it was, they, you know, Dan King's idea of giving them the formation was, right? <laughs> um, people take Elohi as allies all the time, so Vasilean Elohi should be better than the other Elohi because it's part of your army. So thus comes the formation, and we all live in glory and ecstasy as uh, we pick off phalanx hordes anyway, because it doesn't matter because I'd still kill you with all my stuff. Do you have a problem um, with that logic, Jeremy? What? What's wrong with that? What's, I know, what's, what's wrong with the idea? That's perfectly fine. Perfectly acceptable. But what I'm saying is that I, that that dynamic of allies led to a formation which then led to an over-nerf. Because we talk about it, right? Alohi lost, Thunderous Charge, Nimble, and they don't unlock anymore. And it's like, <laughs> I gladly, I think they should have one of those three black back. Um, and I'd be happy to say that it should be Thunderous Charge. Uh, or something, whatever. But the point is that sort of allies mechanic, I think, led us to uh, an area. And Britain had a really great, uh, like, Venn diagram, concentric circle diagram showing, like, Elohi in the middle of all these different nerfs. Like, you know, wanting to nerf speed, wanting to nerf, you know, ally abuse or whatever. So what is your thoughts on allies? Is Can they be a fun thing, too? Or uh, is it too easily abused? Or what are your thoughts on allies? Um, I think that the RC is too smart and has talked to, has brought too many good players into the kind of their advice circle. And so they've taken all the, all the good options away. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't think it, I, my personal opinion is if you're putting allies into your list, uh, and you're doing it because you're trying to be competitive, you probably haven't thought enough about how to use the units in your own list. Um, now there's some exceptions to that for specific units. Like, you know, I don't think any any uh, army would be made worse by allying in three or four butcher regiments right now, just because they're so. I mean, I think they're broken to be honest. But 
you know, I think the only allies that make sense these days are those uh, large infantry, large cavalry regiments where you don't really, you don't need to unlock them. You can just add them. And so that's what I've really been seeing uh, in, in allies. It's, it's either a bunch of large infantry regiments, like air elementals is another example that I've seen a couple of people use to good, good effect. Um, the other thing that I see is taking extremely cheap uh, regiments like zombies or scarecrows, which unlock and just using that to get other units um, like Revcalf troops or, you know, I, anything. I forget exactly what I saw somebody unlocking scarecrows with, but it was, or maybe it was just butcher regiments and a scarecrow regiment, even though you don't need to unlock. But so those are the two kind of classes of allies that I think are still uh, legitimately competitive in this, in this version three uh, space we're in right now. But mostly you don't, you don't need allies. And it, if you send me a list with allies in it and ask my advice, it's probably going to be why, why is that in there? Why don't you use what you already got? So when you're looking at deployment of your army, uh, Tom, do you, do you take that into account in list building? You kind of commented that, I guess, a little bit on whether you use battle groups or not. But when you're looking at deployment specifically, are you thinking about concentration of your either hitting strength or unit strength? Uh, tell us about how you approach deployment, but specifically in the list building phase. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to to do that specifically other than kind of what I've already said which is you want to build your your army so that the majority of your units are kind of all supporting each other in some way um, and then you just kind of build a couple units to go on the flanks to uh, play play spoiler uh, for your opponents fast units and make sure they can't just fly up and, and flank you, um, uh, you know, without, without getting into a fight. So I, I don't, I can't say I, I, t- I really list build with deployment in mind, but what I, what I do do is if you ever see me on universal battle in a, in a locked room by myself, what I'm doing in there is I'm putting out an army on the, on the table and just try, trying to figure out how do these pieces go together? Um, how can I deploy the units that I've already chosen together. Um, and sometimes that'll change the units that I have in there. If I come up with a better idea, um, like for example, I, if you look at any of the pictures that I posted on, uh, Facebook for the Dojo GT, you'll notice I, I deploy the exact same way every single time. And, uh, mostly that was like rev calf troops in front of my soul reavers. And so I think one change is that I'm going to make is add, uh, Wraith troops in place of those uh, RevCav troops because what was happening was uh, some pe- some players were chaffing up my RevCav troops and tying up the Soul Reavers. So if they try to do that with Wraith regiments, then the Wraiths will just fly over them, hit you know tie up their hammers that they're trying to chaff for. The Soul Reavers will kill the chaff and then get it get the charge on on uh, my opponent's hammers. So it's, it's kind of an iterative process. It's hard to, hard to do when you're just cold list building to say, you know, I have this master deployment plan in my head and, and this is how I'm going to list build. It's, it's much more iterative than that. Um, and that's what 
that's where playtesting and just playing games really helps a lot. Because um, I don't know about you guys, but for me, the, the first list I build is vastly different from the list I end up taking to whatever tournament is, is coming up. So, um, and well, and speaking of locked rooms, you're you're pretty used to those anyway, aren't you, Tom? That's where that's where you're kept at home. <laughs> yeah. Just with a little doggy door for meals to be passed in. Right, right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so then, what about? So you don't necessarily think of the deployment itself, but what about? What do you always? You mentioned it a little bit with your RevCav troops, but do you have? Do you have things in your list that you go? I will always put this down first. This is, this is the problem with uh, doing interviews where people who will play me will listen. But what I do is I, I always just – so I have my set formation already that I've come no, up no, with. I'm, I'm going to stop, Tom, where, where, because this really – we have to realize this whole thing could be a long con. He could yeah. be telling us yeah. – like I say, this, I say this all the time. I don't even know if Tom is really my friend. He's still setting me up for some long-term spy master nonsense. So I guess listen to what Tom's saying, but realize that he may be telling this to us. So then when you play him, he does the exact opposite. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've got to keep in mind if you ever come across Tom that, yes, that you, you could have to do two different spectrums. You know, it'll be one, one end or the other. <laughs> and like Britain said, Jeremy, why not? Why not both? Yeah, <laughs> and that could be it. Maybe you, you're like, ah, oh, it's a nice guy to be friends with, and I'll screw him one day. So maybe. It's- <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but so what? I, what I'll do is I'll just put. I have the formation already in my head, and so I'll build. Um, or, you know, I'll build that formation through my deployment. So I'll just put the the cheaper units. You know, the the troops and the the regiments down first and then kind of save my hammers for last. Mm. Um, that, it, 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 you know, put my characters down after that kind of front line is of whatever is built. Um, and then save the hammers for last, uh, just to keep my opponent guessing. And then especially whatever units are going to go on those flanks. I always drop those last because you don't want to be put in a situation where, your opponent decides to overload one flank um, and then you've already deployed what you thought were going to be kind of your, your zone control flank flank control units on the other side. So I'll typically deploy those, those type of units at last. And is it very responsive to your enemy? So in the, in the uh, list builder studio, we've had some vastly different opinions. We've got people that say, um, no, my strategy in my head is my strategy. And then you've got someone like Tracy who says, no, I'm completely responsive to my enemy. I know what I want to line up against. Uh, where do you sit on that line? I think I'm more towards Trace, probably. But um, what, I, what, I'll, what I do is I have certain units that will always just be deployed in the same way. Um, but then I'll have a couple swing units that I will depending on what my opponent does or depending on the scenario or type of army, uh, deploy those differently sometimes. Like for example, in my undead list, I had three regiments of RevCav. And so I will have two regiments always kind of mid flank at, you know, and those are my flank protectors. And then, but that third regiment can either go in the center or it can go with us. Uh, one of the regiments that's always been deployed on a strong flank if I need to do that for whatever reason. Um, so it's kind of formation 
standard formation plus a, a few units that are swing swing units basically okay and we've we've touched a little bit on pathfinder and terrain earlier so you mentioned if something's got pathfinder it might enter your considerations for chaff um we saw this rise of people running you know double fast units whether it's double cav or something and pathfinder on one and strider on the other and you told us your thoughts on you know you probably should go for the more offensive items first do you look to try and uh, include Pathfinder and Strider into your list specifically, or and is that always a thing that you do? Well, talk to us about that. Yeah, if you have those units, uh, you know it. It's extremely powerful. Um, it's an extremely powerful army-wide rule for you know forces of nature or herd or whatever. Um, but I don't. It's again, it's one of those things where when I was first starting out, it was like I always have to have Pathfinder. I always have to have Pathfinder. But now I find I'm I, most of my lists, I don't have any terrain ignoring items except for maybe the strider item, just because it's so so good and efficient. Um, but you do have to have a couple units that um, are, are not going to care about the terrain necessarily. So what I've found is if units that hit on threes with you know cr- some crushing strength, ideally crushing strength two, you don't need terrain ignoring items on those because they'll still hit hard enough, even hindered, that it'll be fine. Because um, it's third edition, you're not going to be alpha striking anything anyway. So um, those type of units, I almost consider like Pathfinder light, and so I won't do that. What I really do like, what I've seen people doing lately, is putting Pathfinder on an infantry horde. Um, I think that's a that's a really good idea because the the thing about Pathfinder is it's not just about unhindered charges; it's about being able to move at the double. Um, and oftentimes, the drawback with infantry hordes is they get stuck on terrain and uh, never get out of it. So I think that's that's an excellent use. But no, I don't I don't really build in specifically Pathfinder Strider. And in terms of those inf- infantry hordes, it, it, it is quite an efficient item, isn't it? I've been playing with it um, recently on like a shield breaker horde and dwarves. And, you know, you really are getting your value for money, like you said, because you're able to move at the double as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really good. Palsguard horde or, yep. or great axe horde, those things are, you know, that's just so, so efficient. Mm. And uh, speaking of terrain, do, do you like to deploy terrain as part of your gaming experience or do you prefer to walk up to a preset table that's reasonably balanced? What, what do you enjoy most? So I play in in the South region where pretty much all our tournaments are um, player placed terrain. So you roll off and then you, you take turns placing the terrain one at a time. Uh, I don't know. I I'm kind of neutral uh, on it, even though I should be for the home team, so to speak. What I found with pre-placed, or I mean, I'm sorry, uh, player-placed terrain is most of the, if, you, if you've worked out the basic strategy, most of the tables look the same, which is, you know, a hill, a hill, a forest, a forest on the side. And then, you know, for me, I'm always putting the fences like in the corner somewhere, um, being that guy. So... You know, as far as what I prefer, I I, pref- I really like the trend that has been going on in some of these Universal Battle tournaments where the TOs will come up with terrain, uh, I'm sorry, with maps 
pre-made maps for the tournament and they already know what scenarios are going to be played on which maps and can kind of make make them interesting i think that's kind of the gold standard um might not be realistic realistic for an in-person tournament necessarily but um, i think that's that's the best way and that's that's what i prefer Okay, and so just moving towards finishing up on our list building principles, do you consider first turn? So do you ever write a list and then get to the end and you go, oh, you know, if I don't get first turn with this list, I'm stuffed uh, and go back to the drawing board or it's it's not something you really consider? Um, it, yeah, it's kind of a hard thing to, to list build for um, other than, you know, you one thing you have to learn is how to how to move up the board um, when and, and learn when you can put yourself into your enemy's charge ranges um, because the, the way you know you're playing like a newer player is uh, or an overly cautious player is that they will play the, the charge range chances and, and when they start doing that and respecting you, your charges too much that's you know that's a huge advantage for you but what the better players often will do is they figured out how to make it safe for them to move up even putting themselves into your charge range uh, to get back some of that board control if they're a slower army or if they're a faster army and they didn't get first turn so no i don't specifically think about whether i'll go first or not but i do think about how can i safely move up even when i'm the slower army or if i'm the faster army and i didn't get first turn how can i get back some of that board control uh, by moving up in a safe way okay and i'm going to take a wild stab here tob and and predict that the hobby side of things doesn't affect your list building too much that you're not typically influenced by a unit you've already built and you just really like (laughs) Uh, no actually you'd be surprised i mean Mm -hmm. I, i my list would be much nastier if I could just make them on universal battle. <laughs> uh, you know, cause like I said, I like to get my money's worth from the units that I've built. So even if, uh, it's not ideal or, you know, I, I'll, I'll still play it just to, to get some use out of it uh, for at least a couple tournaments. So it doesn't necessarily, but it does pain me to, to paint something and then, uh, put it away after only uh, playing it a few times. So I like to switch up my list so that I can get some units that have been sitting on the shelf for a while back in there. Um, so somewhat, somewhat, you'd be surprised. <laughs> okay. Well, that covers our general principles. We'll slide into a commercial break and we'll be back in a moment. Do you take delight in playing with friends and their toys in a safe place free of judgment? Countercharge After Dark. It's where magic happens. Check the show notes and Facebook group announcements for the Discord link. And we are back. So now the second half of List Builders is we sort of heard some of Tom's general principles, more to sort of his meta look and how you construct a list. And now we're going to actually talk with Tom about one of his specific lists. So first off, Tom, why don't you take us through through the list and just give us a quick rundown of what's in the list? 
Sure. So this is my undead list that I built for uh, Samurai Showdown GT, which was in July of this year. And it it's a 2,300-point list. So and the first thing to notice about this list, and just a tip in general, is all my lists are kind of built towards whatever tournament I'm going uh, going to next. And I think that that's, that's something that is not thought about often with list building, but practically speaking, that's, it's a very important part. You got to build for the tournament you're going to go to. And so I, I did that in a couple ways here, which I'll talk about. So it starts off, like I was saying at the beginning, my, my principle, which is figure out what your hammers are going to be um, and make sure some of them ignore phalanx. So I have two solar river infantry regiments and two white hordes. And then, so the solar reavers ignore phalanx and the whites don't, but they're both uh, very hard hitting units. So then, uh, because the whites are irregular, you have to figure out how am I going to get my unlocks for the characters I, I need. Um, so for me, I built in uh, three Revenant Cavalry regiments. They are pretty inexpensive unlocks for the undead if you don't want to go with infantry. So that's that's where I look next. Uh, and then, because Revenant Cav troops are just disgustingly good, um, you know, I built in two, two of those. Um, then for this tournament, they're like a lot of tournaments do, they have a special character. And so with Dojo Dichi, we had a samurai foot hero, which had very inspiring. And so what I figured out was I was always going to run that samurai hero kind of with my center group, the soul reavers and the rev cap troops in front. And so that allowed me to take other units, other characters that did not have inspiring. So I built I built in two necromancers, both with heal and bane chant. And so if I didn't have that samurai hero, then I would probably drop the necromancers and combine them into Jarvis, who's a pretty good caster and has very inspiring. So I wouldn't really have to change up my formation, my set formation that I came up with. Um, I would just have one one less drop. Um, so that's kind of the, the thought process there. Um, and then I built in a Vampire Lord on horse, specifically because I knew a lot of the scenario points were going to be revolving around killing an individual samurai, and the Vampire Lord has duelist. So that that's a, a tournament-specific pick. I might have gone with um, a Vampire and Pegasus or maybe another... Uh, combat unit somewhere so that vampire lord if i was going to a different tournament but uh, i had him here for that reason and then the final two units are revenant kings on horse both with surge five so i had uh two surgers in this list so that was that's that was my 2300 point undead list so outside of the uh, like you say some of the tech tweaks that you picked for the specific tournament pack was this something that you had been developing um for a while has it changed over time as you've been playing some undead in third edition or was this sort of close to where you started with or talk a little bit about the evolution of this particular list so i knew i wanted to 
to have soul reaver infantry in there and i knew i wanted to have whites and then after that is kind of okay what how can i make this a, a full list um, including with the unlock issue which i think is probably the biggest list building challenge in third edition um unfortunately and it kind of constrains a lot of lists even unde- even lists like undead uh, which have pretty much all the options it still forces you down certain paths if you want to take certain units. Um, and so for me, the evolution was, you know, I have those two units. What next? I was going to get Revenant Calvary for the, because I needed the unlocks and I wanted to kind of keep, have some faster units in there. Um, so I was, I've, the, the main evolution was just playing around with what different sizes to, to play to to take them in because um, I had about thirty models and so I can can make about four regiments. Um, I had some lists where I ran a horde with Strider, um, and then in some test games I found that it was just getting uh, uh, jammed up too much. At least the way I was playing it, so I eventually went back down to the regiment size. Um, and then the only other thing was just playing with the characters. Like I found in a couple of practice games that people were shooting RevCav troops. Um, and so I didn't have heal on the necromancers, but I found that that early shooting pressure on the troops forced me to engage faster than I would like to. And so one way to avoid that was just to swap heal on the necromancers for, I think I had surge on them. So I lost some surge ability, but, uh, I, I was able to keep my army together, uh, the way I like to do with just a tiny bit of heal to negate the shooting on the troops. So that's, that's kind of how it evolved. Um, and then I'm sure it'll go through other evolutions as I, as I keep playing. And you've talked a little bit about some of the specific roles, right? Like we all know what the role of soul reward intermetry is, right? It's to blend unit, <laughs> you know, similar yeah. with whites, but I'm curious, have you, did you find that the revenant cav, that you want those Revenant Kings with Surge just to keep the threat of Surge because Revenant Cav Regiment in the flank, right, all of a sudden goes from being a an anvil sort of unit to you could actually do some damage there. Um, talk a little bit about the reasoning behind the mounted Revenant Kings with Surge. They So they were just a... I mean, I needed an, a, a fast, inspiring source out with the Revenant Cav Regiments. And... You know, the, the Revenant Kings were just a good unit. They're 115 points mounted with Surge 5. I could have taken, you know, I guess, um, mounted standard bearers with, with Bane Chan or something or uh, upgraded them into Pegasus, uh, Vampires on Pegasus. But with especially with Inspiring, uh, I, I like having it on individuals just because it's much easier to get that character exactly where you need it to get that bubble covering all the units um, that you need to cover. And so I, I, I always kind of like that, um, that cheap combat character that also inspires um, for whatever reason. But yeah, the surge, honestly, I rarely surge with this list. It's just more of the threat of it. Um, and, and when something goes wrong for my opponent uh, to take advantage of that. So I th- you know, I, yeah, 
Yeah, that's why I always like recommend when people talk to me about undead lists that are vampire heavy but still have no surge. I think just the the mental capital that you have to spend looking at your opponent's surge angles, even if they never surge you, is a nice advantage to have because it's time on the clock that they're using. It does give you like an ace in the hole, but I always would say undead lists, even if you don't have a majority of surgeable units, having some surge in the list really does net you a positive. Yeah, what I found is, you know, even more, I mean, the threat is nice, but what what's really powerful about Surge, at least to me, is you don't have to get, like, the perfect angle for any of your units to, like, get them in a multi-charge. Like, if you just, if you have messed up and something charges one unit and your other unit is, it's just barely out of your other unit's arc, which happens all the time, especially on the tabletop when you can't, like, you know, set things up with perfect precision like you can on UB. Um, it's a nice like cheat to just say, oh yeah, I messed that up, but it doesn't matter because I'll just move up and then surge it in and it'll be fine. So that's that's what I really, it, it's, it makes your list a lot more forgiving with those kind of movement mistakes that everybody makes. And that's interesting. We've sort of seen that, right, uh, develop as not only uh, quote UB meta quote, but I think there's been a whole different play style that's developed through no clock to UB games in that you can, and I know you and I have talked about this, you're able to essentially outthink yourself out of almost any situation in the fact that you can load in every single unit, you can check every single angle, because with no time limit, if you want to, you could literally load in 30,000, you know, page Neo it and learn in all these like, <laughs> you know, copies of your units and check absolutely every type of angle which you just can't do in a real game so it's interesting that we've seen right that through ub it's not only list archetype metas develop but also a, a whole new different way play style of how you actually play the game <laughs> yeah that's one way of putting it <laughs> uh, i do think that the, there's certain lists that are much tougher to play on the tabletop than they are to play on uh on ub like with multiple flyers, it's so much easier to check angles and distances on UB than it is on the tabletop, which some of the power of those, those dragon units or flying units is just, you know, it's hard to keep track of the game state for, especially like turns three and four when things are getting chaotic and every, you know, there's a bunch of combats going on. And with UB, it's it's a lot easier because of the lack of time pressure and because of the tools that you have available to, like you say, think yourself out of those situations. So, and like even and even though I'm not a fan of using clocks on UB games, I am a proponent of using them on UB games for this very purpose, which is I think it creates play play game states and play dynamics which are not authentically uh, connected to the real world experience and in my mind ub has been a great way for us to stay together in a stopgap until we have more in-person games but you should still always in my opinion be building towards skills that you can use on the actual tabletop so even though i don't like the experience <laughs> of using a clock on ub just from the awkwardness of it i think really we've hit a point right where we can't continuously have four or five hour games 
we're 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 moving too far away from what the actual game experience is in real life. Plus, it's just boring as hell sitting there for two right? hours or three hours while someone you know does everything. I think it's not only is it not like a real world experience, but I think it's actually a really negative experience. You know, we're we're losing people to UB because of that. Yeah, I think in tournaments like UB tournaments, that's uh, it's almost mandatory at this point because when people when it gets competitive. Um, especially at the at the end of tournaments people do take advantage of, of not being on a clock um i don't mind i'm t- i'm a pretty fast player so if it's just a pickup game i like making things as hard as possible on myself and so i don't mind if people take as long as the game's not lasting for four hours you know, if it lasts for three hours i find that's pretty much standard for ub games at least for me and so i don't mind giving my opponent a lot more time um, and thinking things out because it just makes it tougher on me. So in some sense, it's good, but but overall, I, yeah, I agree with you, what you guys are saying. So um, talking about the undead, Tom, uh, what first drew you to the to the army specifically? I mean, you said you had the club challenge, and so that was one of the reasons. Was there anything else besides oh, that and easy mode? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that uh, because I wanted to win. No, yeah. it was because <laughs> it, it, it was honestly because. Uh, of the challenge, and then I already had a bunch of undead models uh, that I had purchased that were just lying around, and and that, and also I wanted to, a different play style, um, you know, with the surge, which bass lines don't have, and so this, even though I, I kind of joked this was similar to at least my the brother Mark army I had, it is very different than what I was playing in second edition, and so. You know, that's that's what I if I'm going to make another army, it's it's going to be because it has a wildly different play style um, with Kings. You can play a lot of different ways within the same faction. Um, but, you know, it's it's not a bad thing to have a new army show up with a new army at a tournament every now and again, because people do get tired of seeing you play the same thing over and over, even if you're taking different units. So. OK. And, and what do you think this army does really well? And conversely, what does it struggle with as well? Um, what it does really well is it's just all defense five, um, fearless, except for the soul reavers, but you, you're not going to get to the soul reavers, um, unless, you know, it's turn five or six. So it's just, it's just very difficult to do anything to it with, uh, shooting early on. And so I'm going to be hitting you with, uh, all of my units and then the rev you know the rev cav are all speed eight and so and, and defense five fearless and so it's it's really difficult to win the chaff game against them because um, you you know even if you know so they can even take out some some uh, medium units by themselves um, and the speed eight even though they're shambling it's uh, 16 inch charges to lock things down and then bring up the solar rivers and whites is it's a hard thing to deal with um, what it struggles with i think it would struggle with like for example a herd army that can take full advantage of whatever trains on the board and go really heavy on the flanks um, which probably would give me some problems because um, i want to kind of do stay in that center blob uh, and if I have to spread out, then, it, you know, it could, it could cause some problems for me. Some problems. But really the real answer to that question is what does it struggle with is nothing, isn't it, Tom? 
it's it's gonna struggle with not getting nerfed in about uh, a month. <laughs> That's honestly its biggest downside. <laughs> and you touched on this when we were talking about deployment generally before, but do you have um, predetermined strategies? So I think one of the things you said is you tend to put your RevCav trips down front and let them take a hit. Is there anything else that's really predetermined for you? No, not really, other than, I mean, the the combination of having a, a speed eight uh, fearless troop with the solar rivers behind it is just so good because you, even though the RevCav are height three, so you sometimes can't combo charge with the solar rivers, you can just back up, uh, you know, disengage one inch and then move four inches to the side with the RevCav troop and bring in the solar river infantry. So that, that, combination is just super powerful um but what i'm typically let's I, i'm just deciding how wide to to deploy my revcab regiments depending on where the objectives are because uh, those are really my swing units i could deploy them wider or tighter depending on what the snare is and what the opponent is bringing okay and what about best performers do you have a favorite unit in the list? Um, I think that the Rev King, Revenant Kings on horse are kind of the, the sneaky good unit because they just do everything um, at once at a, at a really good price point. So they, they provide inspiring and search support. They are, uh, you know, themselves, their flyer control because they can, they can go out and hit something and they have enough attacks uh, to ground a dragon or, or tie up a unit for one turn if they need to. And so they, they really let the other, other units do work. So I think other than the obvious, you know, they're kind of the uh, unsung heroes of the list. Does this list work particularly well with any scenarios or is it is a good generalized list? It would it does pretty well with most of them um but like i say if if they're it can't really go out on the extreme flanks and grab objectives one of the one of the things that i found is i always want to deploy my the objectives that i can deploy as close together as possible and then put my uh, my center force across from there um because even though people say shambling is a is a benefit i really think because of surge, what they don't realize sometimes is you can't at the double uh, with shambling, or they don't think about you can't at the double with shambling, and so that makes it more difficult to go out and get those uh, far flung objectives on the last turn, uh, you know, the last two turns. So it, it does struggle when there's a wider deployment against armies that can, you know, put a cheap drop on uh, on objectives on the side of the table. So that's. It's what it, it struggles with. We've talked a little bit about some scenarios that it's it's good or or maybe not quite as good. What about matchups wise? Do you think list on list are there any matchups you don't want to see or any matchups that you feel pretty confident with? It's honestly it's more about the player that I'm facing. I think it, it would do pretty well against something that was trying to alpha strike me because it's gonna be hard. You know, even with powerful alpha striking units to knock off a, a dash 17 defense five revenant cav regiment. So those type of armies, any any elite armies without you know crushing strength or 
Christian, you know, like Christian Street Two or Bang Chant to back it up. It's just going to be difficult to get through my front line of revenant and five revenant cab units. Um, you can get stuck and then flanked or, or hit with the with the hammers. Um, what it would struggle with would be trident realms and snare units. That just because the revenant cab then go from doing pretty much no damage to really no damage, uh, and it also you know it also hurts my my hammers. So that that would be difficult matchup or obviously you know kings of men and snare phalanx hordes or any ceremonial guard horde long axe that would be a pretty bad matchup for me so you've talked a little bit about how you've done with the list previously which has been pretty great but we all know that um revenant cab may be on the under the microscope is probably being pretty <laughs> being too good and i think you as you know i think most good players who probably play with undercosted units they know you know what i mean it's not like a like what my revenant cab's too good you're crazy I mean, <laughs> You, you, we realize that, right? So have you thought a little bit about if you were, if if either the game goes to maybe a smaller points limit, like I know the, the Northeast guys love that 1995 or 2000, or if Revenant Cab gets uh, updated in the upcoming pack, have you thought about how you would change the lists at all? You recognize that, but you never admit that, especially on Fanatics. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think the big change, unfortunately, is going to be uh, taking out some of these rev cab units. Um, if the rumors I hear are true, who knows what will happen. But I think that they, you know, if I was going to lose something, I would probably lose one of the rev cab regiments um, or one of the hammer units. So I'd go down from three hammers to four. I think at 1995, 2003 is, is perfectly fine. So th- that I might do those things if I need to get to a, a 1995 list. As far as unit swaps, I think rates are just really, really good and have been overlooked by people, at least early on this year. Um, or maybe everybody's just complaining about RevCab and they'll complain about rates next. But I'm going to build in some of those, I think. Um, you know, you get some Pathfinder ignoring, I mean, uh, terrain ignoring units and uh, Defense 6 is always good, so that's probably going to be the evolu- next evolution. Yeah, I know Rashad has been playing with those lately. Uh, some uh, Putting wraiths back into the list as his undead has evolved. And yeah, they are, man. They're just like pretty nice defense six strider units are, are pretty, pretty solid. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like I was saying, you can't really, you can't chat them up as a front line, which is causes another problem. Like when I was playing Dustin at uh, Dojo GT, he blocked up some of my units with a snow fox, and uh, he couldn't do that if the the revenant cav were raids. So, yeah, yeah, because right of, of being able to have that maneuverability to get around is 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 pretty huge. Mm-hmm. Um, well, awesome. Before we go to the uh, our hot fire questions, Matt, you have any uh, anything else for Tom? No, I don't think so. I think that's been a, a good insight into the you know the dark abyss of Tom Annis's brain. <laughs> So, the mind of the spy master. Yeah, exactly. Yep, yep. I feel, you know, I feel much darker and dirtier just talking to him, but, you know. So we might move on to our uh, rapid fire questions that we do in our list builder studio, Tom. So the idea is to answer these with the first thing that comes into your head. And uh, we're just going to shoot through 10 questions. All right. Okay. All right. So what's your favorite army? 
Barcelona's least favorite scenario. Uh, I'd say salt the earth because I still don't really know what it is. <laughs> what drives you creatively or competitively? Uh, coming up with cool formations on the on the tabletop ways my units can work together. When your opponent rolls snake eyes. Um, sorry, yeah, try not to smile. <laughs> when you roll snake eyes. Uh, just move on. It, it happens. Uh, and, yeah, if you're, if you're playing a good enough game, it shouldn't kill you most of the time. What is your favorite hobby material? Um, I'd say spackle. Um, really easy to make. Really cool bases. Uh, what is your biggest gaming pet peeve? Uh, people picking up their dice too quickly after after rolling. Mm-hmm. If you had to replace miniature wargaming with another hobby, what would it be? Probably uh, Total War Warhammer. What other miniature game would you not want to play? I don't think I want to play 40K. I listened to a couple podcasts just to, to see what it's about, and it seems like I'd have to spend a, I'd have to get a second job to really play that at a high level. Mm. If you had a romantic evening with the venerable Ronnie Renton, what would you whisper sweetly to him? Uh, where's Kyle? <laughs> All right. So uh, that just about winds us up. Tom, have you got any shout-outs you want to give? Uh, we are going to be running another call to arms tournament. I think we're going to announce it here pretty soon, depending on when this comes out. I think our goal is to run it at the end of beginning at the end of September so that we can finish up before Christmas doing the same two week, um, you know, two weeks for each game sort of thing. And so look out for that. Otherwise, no, just, uh, just thanks you guys. And, Really, I think everybody should take some time to thank the content creators that have really kept guiding us through this dark COVID time. Um, you know, really has, has been important to keeping the community together. And I don't think we thank them enough. Countercharge and Dash 28 and Unplugged Radio and everybody out there, all the, all the various blogs that have popped up. So just a shout out to all you guys. Yeah, thanks, mate. And on that call to arms, changes based on feedback? Are there going to be some? I think clocks are going to be mandatory. Okay. Uh, at least if one person requests it. Uh, well, the, no, I think I think the better way to do it is just to make it mandatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's no, none of the, the peer pressure aspect of it. Um, and other than that, no, I don't think so. The, the weird thing about Call to Arms is it was never meant to be a super competitive tournament. It was just kind of the way to practice for whatever tournament was coming up. But because of the pandemic and total lack of other tournaments uh, and and Mike Atkins coming up with the idea of live streaming the games, people started getting more competitive than I think uh, it was warranted. And so we're just going to keep it to, you know, there's different ideas like making everybody take the same list so you can't list build for your opponent or scenario coming up. But really, it's not supposed to be a competitive thing. And so... Other than clocks, I don't think we're going to be making too many changes. Okay. Jeremy, any shout-outs from you, mate? Yeah, so we're going to have Rashad on the show soon to go over Riddle of Steel. 
uh, it's gonna we're gonna have Rashad, and then Shannon Shoemaker is probably gonna come on as well. So shout out again to Rashad for an awesome tournament. Riddle Steel was last weekend, and it was a lot of fun. Um, he's really found uh, this really great balance between having flavorful thematic scenarios and special characters, but not the blown out special character that like kills half your army so he he's really found that really nice sweet spot of having all of the flavor of a a a thematic narrative event but still keeping it within the roots of being a competitive um competitive tournament so shout out to him you know again i was just to to piggyback on what tom said thanks to everyone who has been doing uh battle reports or blogs or, or taking part in the the community you know uh, I, I feel I was listening to a um, episode back in March and it was like, oh, yeah, you know, by August, I'll be doing this because this thing will be way over by then. And here, and here we are <laughs> in September. So I think this in many ways is going on much longer than uh, any of us had had uh, thought. And then not only with that, right at the beginning of covid, there was no yet uh, uh uh, social unrest for much needed reasons are for in California, we're dealing with the, you know, the worst fires, you know, in the history of the state and b- with people beginning to, to conceptualize, not just uh, as a uh, fire season, but the idea of climate fires of how changes in our climate may be affecting fire. So I think, you know, I saw a meme and it was 2020 and it was girl going down a slide, but the slide had been photoshopped to look like a cheese grater. <laughs> and it was like this is this is 2020. So, uh, and I honestly feel it, it, we're going to get through this. It's not it's not a matter of if. It's just it's just a question of when. And the more that we can stay together through this, that when we do come out on the better side, the 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 more you know the better community we will have. So uh, thanks, you know, just again echoing what Tom said. Thanks to everyone, and then also to continued thanks, you know. Uh, we really appreciate you guys listening to Countercharge. We hope that uh, with the sort of a solid group of hosts that we have doing different content from all over the world, we're continuing to give you guys a nice variety of uh, content. Um, we're going to have an episode coming out soon on airbrushes. I'm getting some of the great hobbyists uh, in the country to come together to talk all things airbrushes. So stay tuned for that episode. And then as always, you know, let us know if there's any show topics or any ideas you want us to discuss. Just uh, hit us up in the Countercharge Facebook group. And then finally for me, just After Dark is back going. We have the After Dark Discord channel. The other night we had seven or eight people on. So that is now starting to pick up speed again, Steam again, as always. So if you're interested or want to try out After Dark, see what that's like, um, just let me know. I think that pickup can be purely attributed to our new After Dark advertisement, don't you think, Jeremy? I, I, I think so too, man. Mm. Whew. Yeah, Made me ask for questions about my my life choices after I heard that one. That was, <laughs> sounds good to me. Yeah. So uh, I want to give a shout out uh, for the Countercharge Hobby Challenge that we're running. So on the Countercharge Facebook page, we're doing six weeks of hobby and that's not judging uh, based on quality or anything like that. It's just posting pictures of what you're up to, trying to re- reinvigorate our hobby a bit because we'd noticed that there was a bit of a dropout if you didn't hear on on the burnout episode with myself and Steve and and, um, Mark. Also, we'll have another episode, a very exciting episode coming out soon-ish on the new Magic Supplement where we have someone very involved who will be coming on and talking to myself and Steve about it. And I also want to give a shout-out to Michael Clark from the Australian scene who's been running our local UB tournaments and keeping our scene running. 
Uh, so that's all I've got. So, Tom, if you'd like to take us out. Until next time, keep countercharging. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15, or by commenting on the Countercharge Kings of War podcast Facebook group. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.